Hi, everybody, and welcome to our special edition of the 40 Years Later episode. Um, today is September 17th, 2020, which marks 40 years ago that Carla and Vicki went missing. Um, thank you all for joining us. Um, we are your hosts today, Amelia Courtney and Lainey Sullivan. Um, thank you again for joining us. Um, this episode, this special episode, is going to be broken up into two or three segments, and we will be hosting um, a few special guests. So thank you for joining us again, and enjoy. Awesome. So the facts. We wanted to go into a little bit of the background and just remind you guys of the facts of the case. Um, Forty years ago today, Carla Atkins and Vicki Stout went to a store called The Furnace, just up the road from their house. And... They were last spotted talking to a man in the blue truck. Um, it was September 17th of 1980, and the final time that they would have been seen alive. So Carla Atkins and Vicki Stout had skipped school for presumably the second day in a row. Vicki's boyfriend, Randall Riggins, and the girl's brother, Randy, along with another guy named Bobby Morgan, were supposed to report to the Stewart County Jail to begin serving a sentence for marijuana possession. There's a possibility that the girls were supposed to testify in another criminal case in Paris, Tennessee the following day. That would be on the 18th. So there is also a possibility that, that day that Vicki had told her boyfriend, Randall Riggins, that she could possibly be pregnant. Mm -hmm. So on that eventful afternoon, the girls hitched a ride with Vicki's boyfriend, Randall, who may or may not have been in jail um, after they turned themselves in. That is still to be determined. He was on the jail log that he was still in jail, um, but an eyewitness saw him later on that afternoon. Randy, as you may have seen or heard in our podcast early on, Randy says, the brother Randy Stout says, Randall did not stay in jail. But um, others have said Randall did stay in jail and the jail log shows that he was still in jail. Mm -hmm. But the eyewitness says, Randall had the girls in a, um, like a yellow green van with him at the store. So the eyewitness saw Randall and Carla and Vicki in the green van with him at the store. Later, the girls were seen walking on foot. That The girls did not get back in the van with Randall. Randall went one direction and the girls left walking um, out of the store. So um, the girls were seen walking to the furnace. So after they left the IGA, they were walking to the furnace, another local convenience store where they were reportedly buying snacks and or cigarettes. So they were last observed talking to a man in a blue truck. So one eyewitness saw um, the girls talking to um, a man in a blue truck. Now, and also too, um, we want to report some new information that we received over the last few weeks. Um, someone called in to tell us that there was a second eyewitness um, that saw the girls um, talking to the man in the blue truck, that allegedly um, this woman was driving a car and she saw the girls talking to the man in the blue truck, and that allegedly um, she called and reported this, and then allegedly David Hicks came to her house and told her that she should not report this to anyone else, that she was an older woman living alone, and that harm may come to her if she reported this. So again, allegedly, David Hicks told her not to report this. So this is more than one eyewitness um, that saw the girls talking to the man in the blue truck. 
And as you may or may not remember, Sheriff, I mean, David Hicks was sheriff at the time. And so it was a pretty strong statement coming from him at the time, if that is to be the truth. And so this woman took that to heart and she took it as though he was giving her great advice, if that is true. She felt as though maybe she would be in harm if she reported that. So then later on that day, when their mother realized that they hadn't come home from the store, she called to report them missing. And when she had reported them missing, Sheriff David Hicks, quote, um, said, I am going to kick their butts when I find them. Um, I believe that they just were out running around. Um, and when we get them, we, you know, we'll, we'll bring them home type thing. And then the, the next morning, the girls still had not shown back up. Um, the truancy officer had shown up because they were not in school. And that's when they were able to really start the documentation of reporting the girls were missing. And from that point on, every day, every hour, um, they were just waiting on that phone call in order to find out that the girls had been found. Um, they had heard rumors that girls had been spotted in different locations. So it was just an ongoing, just minute by minute, anxiety-driven time period for the family and for their friends. And then on October 5th, 18 days after the girls went missing, um, their bodies were discovered by hikers in the Lost Creek area of land between the lakes. Um, it's about five miles from where Carl and Vicki lived in a mobile home with their mom and their younger siblings. Um, police were dispatched to the scene and according to sources, violations of police crime scene protocol supposedly occurred, including TBI agent Jack Charlton allegedly improperly bagging multiple pieces of evidence and placing them all in a large trash bag. Um, the bag subsequently came up missing after, by his own account, when his car was broken into and the evidence was stolen. Um, the murder scene was just a few hundred yards away from the house where Carla and Vicki had once lived. Early, eerily, their uncle Joe Stout was just down by the hill getting um, some water from the spring that was right there at the base of the hill. And he heard shots late in the afternoon of the day that the girls disappeared and went missing. Joe also saw both a blue truck and a brown car racing out of that area of the Lost Creek um, and going very quickly. <laughs> there were um, Stout encouraged to no avail police to search the area after learning his nieces were missing. So he didn't know at the time um, that they were missing, obviously, because it was that day. But he did realize after the fact that maybe there was something connected there. Um, autopsies were performed on the bodies at the Memphis Crime Lab. The, ca the cause of death was obviously homicide. Um, specifically, both Carla and Vicki were shot in the back of the head with a shotgun. Um, the bodies were badly decomposed and really no evidence of any kind of sexual assault or any kind of um, harm was really able to be ascertained at that point in time. Um, the girl's brother, Randy Stout, was still in jail on the marijuana charges when he learned of the terrible news from law enforcement. He opened up the door, probably two foot, and said, Randy, come here a minute. I know right then. Didn't nobody have to tell me God already did. 
And I walked up. He said, pointed down the hallway. Said, Randy, let's go down there in my office. I need to talk to you. I was going first, him behind me, David Hicks, the four cops behind him. We go in his office at the end of the hallway. We all get in there. He says, Randy, we found your sister's bodies. They've been murdered, and I went nuts. I tore that office all apart. So throughout the years, the case would grow cold. But through persistence of the family, law enforcement would from time to time revisit this investigation. But the case really heated up in 2013 when the Podneck News, an online Dover-based news blog site, ran. Tim Webb's alleged account of what happened. The story was published following Webb's suicide, and it implicated a suspect for the double murder. However, the source for this story reportedly and later refused to corroborate their own account published by the Putnam News. The suspect named in the article denied having anything to do with the murders of Carla Atkins and Vicki Stout, claiming he was not even in Dover when the murders of Carla and Vicki happened. In June 2014, the suspect and Stewart County Sheriff David Hicks countersued filing civil litigation against the Potnet News publisher, Robin Brandon, over the story. The civil actions were also filed against investigative reporter, David Ross. Although he had no involvement in writing the story and did not work for, nor had ownership interest in the Potnet News. After months winding through the court system, the case was dismissed with prejudice after an undisclosed settlement was reached between the two parties. And also, I want to just make note that the story was pulled after that, and you can still find the Potnet News on the internet. However, any story involving Carla and Vicki was pulled, I think, at the judge's request, and that was part of the um, agreement between the two parties. Yep. And there were also, there were other suspects that were actually under investigation for these crimes over the years. Um, you know, up to 30 individuals were looked at by law enforcement authorities and have cited other individuals as suspects. Um, Murder at Land Between the Lake has not named any of those suspects. But family members want Randall Riggins, who was dating Vicki at the time of the murders, to answer questions they have. Randall, a friend named Bobby Morgan and the girl's brother Randy, were due in court on marijuana charges the day the girls went missing. Um, Riggins has not been and is not now described as a suspect, but the family has questions where his answers might provide useful information. The family also wants to know why Tim Webb would implicate himself in a heinous double murder, knowing he could receive the death penalty just for being present at the killings when they occurred. According to multiple sources, up until his death, Tim Webb continued to tell acquaintances a consistent story of the day that the murders happened. He included details that, if true, could only be known by the police or someone who was present at the crime scene, possibly could be corroborated by the evidence. Um, allegations ranging from the murders being the result of the girls' knowledge of drug use and drug sales, the girls possibly being scheduled to testify in nearby Henry County about such activities, and rumors about their dating lives and boyfriends were all part of the fabric of this case for over the past 40 years. In late 2015, the Tennessee Bureau of Investigation released a sketch of a witness 
description of the man in the blue truck the girls were last seen speaking with. The sketch was done shortly after the girls went missing and curiously ran in the newspaper in nearby Paris, Tennessee, but was apparently not distributed in Dover. The sketch was released along with age progressions of the individual. In August 2016, then Tennessee Governor Bill Haslam offered a $5,000 reward for information leading to the apprehension, arrest, and conviction of the person or persons responsible for the girl's kidnap and murder. Hi, I'm Carrie Dedman. I'm Carla and Vicki's niece. Our family is so grateful to Mayor Robin Brandon for the proclamation I'm about to read. In remembrance, Stewart County, Tennessee officially commemorates the unsolved murders of Carla Atkins, 14, and Vicki Stout, 16, that occurred 40 years ago today. Even the most basic details of the case are grisly and the double shotgun murders of two half-sisters still haunt our community today because they remain unsolved. Carla and Vicki's bodies were discovered by hikers in the Lost Creek area of the land between the lakes on October 5, 1980. A vigil commemorating the girls will be held this year on Sunday, October 4th, to honor their memory and keep attention focused on the cold case. As Stewart County Mayor, I, Robin Brandon, officially proclaim September 17th, 2020 as Carla Atkins and Vicki Stout Memorial Day and ask your, our entire community to remember this case, keep it at the forefront of our thoughts and prayers and demand justice for Carla and Vicki. This case can be solved and it's time to shine the brightest possible light on the investigation. We also beseech any citizen with information about the case to come forward. Our county citizens offer our collective thoughts and prayers for resolution and peace to the girls' families and friends. Given under my hand this 17th day of September, 2020, signed the Honorable Robin Brandon, Stewart County Mayor. Hey guys, welcome back. Today we have Dennis Barrier with us from Channel 17, Fox News, Nashville. And so we met, Lenny and I both met Dennis when we were in Dover. And so it's so nice to see you again, Dennis. How are you? Great to see you, doing great, doing great. <laughs> Good. So we actually just wanted to talk to you a little bit about when you first, the first time you reported on Carla and Vicky's disappearance, because you know now, as you know, we're leading into um, the days ahead of, an, uh, of their 40-year disappearance. So, if you could tell us about the first time you heard about their disappearance, and you know, and then followed by their murders, do you remember that time? Yeah, I do, because it was a, uh, it was, uh, I had kind of always specialized in cold cases. I just had a heart for it because I thought it was agonizing. It's bad enough, you know, covering so many murders over my 34 year career it was bad enough just seeing families <clears throat> deal with having a murder. And then the idea that it would be unsolved was just so painful. And uh, I just saw people, you know, just torn apart by it, you know, marriages ending, careers lost, you know, it's a really divisive experience. 
you know, I, I, I worked on cases where like, you know, one, like say the mom would want to talk about it all the time and the dad never wanted to talk about it. And it literally ended the marriage over the unsolved because it was unsolved. One couldn't let it go. One didn't want to talk about it anymore. It actually went way beyond the murder and just actually destroyed the family. So it always had a, a heart for that. And a lot of times with cold cases, you know, the only thing that would keep them alive is media attention. So I was always willing to. So I think it was around 2000, it was the 20th anniversary, and I was contacted by family members and said, hey, would you help this? Our case is, you know, dead in the water. It's, and you know, I got the whole background. And that was 20 years ago. So right. I, did, I did my first story 20 years ago, and I was just trying to help the family by getting the word out because it does matter and you never know who will see it or who, you know, because circumstances change. You know, sometimes the killer is a big bully in the county. And if that, if he's like old and infirm or people aren't afraid of him anymore, let's say he had a stroke. I mean, just things where that, that feeling of menace and fear goes away. Witnesses have come forward in the past and mm -hmm. talked. So there's always a chance, you know, that circumstances change. So after you did that first, um, that first investigation, the first piece about 20 years ago, um, what, what do you feel like came from that? Like what were, well, I think, I, what, I think that the most, like my theory, and it's not just mine, but it's been kind of backed up by other people in law enforcement that I respect are really good at solving. You know, they said, whenever, uh, there's an unsolved murder like that, something has gone really wrong, really sideways. Because the truth is, most murders are, are done in, you know, a heat of anger, mistakes are made. It's way harder, you know, than, than it looks like to pull off a perfect murder and not make a mistake like in an Agatha Christie novel or something. Right. right? It just doesn't happen like that. Yeah. People make mistakes. And the other thing is with uh, law enforcement, too, makes mistakes, especially in smaller counties. They have less training you know, they, uh, there's things done that are not even intentional sometimes. I was at a murder, there's a, mur a famous murder out in uh, McKenzie and, and they, all the neighbors felt bad and went and cleaned up the scene. Well, the family went to the hospital to see if the murder victim would survive, right? They went to the hospital because they like died at the hospital. Everyone said, well, they don't need to see this. So they all came and got on their hands and knees and scrubbed the murder scene and completely destroyed the scene. And of course, then the police in that small town did not come in and secure the area and say, you know, nobody here. They just kind of got the kid and left. And I mean, they never recovered from that. The investigation never recovered from that. So things like that happened. So clearly like, you know, a double murder of two teenage girls would just be such a big story in a big city and it would have been constant scrutiny. But I think that, uh, in a small town force that didn't have a lot of crime like that. And they probably got off to a really bad start. And I think you guys know some other things as well, but it just, uh, something went wrong, you know, from the beginning, more than one thing, probably. Yeah. Yeah. And okay. So it's interesting, Dennis, that you said, you know, it was 20 years when you covered it and how cases get such media coverage. And this case, you know, never did get media coverage. 
when we started this um, story, it was just disheartening to find that there were no case, there was no there were no stories. There wasn't much you could find. If you Google Carla Atkins and Vicky Stout a year ago, you would find very little on their case. I mean, that's how we started it. We wanted to know as much as we could about it before we even started, and there was very little to be found. I mean, we could find your segment, we could find very few articles, and that was it. So when you covered it 20 years ago, it had hardly been touched. Yeah, right. And, you know, and also the internet, the one, the thing that it did, it does great with like books and old archives of newspapers, but the television stations did not have an internet presence in any way. So right. that, that stuff would never turn up. Like Channel 4, when I, I was at Channel 4 at the time I did that story with the NBC station in Nashville. And, you know, they had an archive going back to, you know, World War II right afterwards when the station came on air. But the only place you could find it was in, like, the catacombs of that television station. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there could have been a documentary made on the murder. And you wouldn't know it. It would not, it would not ever pop up on the Internet. That stuff was just never entered. None of it. And some of a lot more exists than you think, but like the whole, all those TV, like daily reports, right? they don't, they're not there. No one has put them on. I mean, yeah. so it really makes it look worse than it is, you know, because when I did the story in 2000, I went back, we went down and found 1980. We found film of the, of the area, you know, okay. right afterwards, like we had gone at, someone had gone up, you know, and it, but you're right. I mean, it did not get a lot of coverage, mm -hmm. but proximity is a huge thing in television news. And I know people don't talk about it because it seems so unfair and crazy, but if something happens at a big city really close to the stations, it's really easy to, to follow up constantly, go check. Tabitha Tudors is a famous Nashville missing case. And that, you know, there's probably 600 stories done on that, but it's really easy. There's the dad, he lives down the street. We're going to do it every year, minimum. And when someone's two hours away, it's a lot harder to stay on top of it. It takes, you know, more of a, you have to be much more intentional. And yeah. uh, it's not the same, you know, because you don't, you know, you got 10,000 people out there. So you have a much, you're not really serving your broader viewer base. I mean, there's a lot of like economic mm -hmm. considerations that go in, unless it's something like Holly Bobo, where it's just so outrageous, you know, uh, you know, middle of the day kidnapping or, you know, something like that. Yeah. I mean, she was a girl who got a lot of attention too because of, she was pretty and so, you know, middle mm -hmm. class and, you know, there's that too, you know, poor people really don't get the same kind of coverage on murders either. It's right. Yeah. So you mentioned that the family reached out to you in 2000. And given that they were obviously not that close and it was a couple hours away from Nashville, what was it about the case that you, that triggered you to say, okay, this is something that I really can make an impact on? Just because of the pain and the family members. I didn't even know if I could, you know, I just know that I'm going to do my best, mm -hmm. you know, because there's a need and it's, it's a serve. I believe that it, there's a public service element, a huge one in in, in, in my job, I could, wouldn't do it. I don't do it to be on TV. I actually believe that, you know, we should make a difference and change laws and right. get bad guys and do all that stuff. So, you know, just the, the emotional plea of, you know, of the family, like it, it just the suffering, 
made me absolutely want to get it out there. And then, you know, and then you put a story on and you get some more calls. Like you guys know every, you know, exactly how that works more than right to in space. Mm-hmm. So things came and, you know, a few years later, I, I talked to the former sheriff up there who I had met, who was now like he was a, in drug enforcement in Dixit. And he had this big theory he wanted to share with me. And I did another story, very veiled based on his theory that there was a serial killer loose in middle Tennessee that had probably killed seven people. And we kind of like looked at that um, just because why not? We threw it out there. I mean, cause there was the guy that, that they were talking about is absolutely a killer, mm-hmm. but how, how many crimes he committed was hard to say. That might've been you know, untrue. And I think you know what I'm talking about, but you know, when someone's killed a couple people, why not look at them for maybe killing a couple more? Right, absolutely. Uh, I'll tell you, like I talked, there was an FBI profiler who was teaching at MTSU back in the 90s. And I got to know her pretty well. And her theory was that 90% of all serial, serial killers were undetected and uncharged. That 90% of serial killers in the United States, because the idea of killing a random person for no particular reason is absolutely the way to get away with a murder. That's frightening. I mean, that's absolutely frightening. 90%. It's It's like they walk among us, right? Yeah, because if they kill, you know, Mm -hmm. because that's not where you look. You know, you're like, who who was jealous? Who, you know, who they owe money? And then it leads you to the killer. But if it's just really, truly random and a joy killing, man, it's hard, you know, where are you going to connect it if you don't have physical evidence or your police force isn't very good? Right. And preserving evidence, which we've seen for sure. And if a serial killer jumps from state to state, starts crossing state lines, I mean, that's when, you know, that's when, like, the, they finally start putting other things into place where, like, codas and different things. But, you know, back 40 years ago, that didn't exist. No, not at all. And like you said, you even on your internet search, I mean, it's, you know, you know, like, you even like people like my parents are older, you know, and I mean, they're not on the internet in any way, but they had like very productive lives and did lots of things. And, you know, my dad played college sports. You can't find that. It's like, you know, there anything, <laughs> a lot of stuff just doesn't exist, you know? Yeah. If you don't have that hard copy, like it, it just, it's like it never, that piece isn't there anymore. Yeah. But when you talk about law enforcement, Dennis, when you're doing the farrier files, do you get much support from the local departments or is, do you have to get it from more like your information from the locals? Well, the, the, it, it just depends on the situation. Like, I mean, you're absolutely going to get nothing from the, the Tennessee Bureau of Investigation in the state of Tennessee, right? They don't help media ever. I mean, they just don't. Okay. And then they, they, their files are sealed in perpetuity, which is a really horrible thing. And a lot of people don't like that because, it also makes them very hard to hold accountable when they can hold a file, you know, like on these girls for 40 years and no one else can even look at it. So you don't even know what they did or didn't do. So it's really, it's a very controversial thing to give these people that kind of protection. And yeah. a lot of district attorneys, let me tell you, a lot of district attorneys are very much against it. Now they might not come out and say it because think about it, you know, they're using them, you're using their crime lab. 
It isn't like they can go on television and say it's an absolute outrage that the TVI's files are sealed forever and then work with them the next day. You know, they're, I mean, that's right. It's going to be very awkward. And so they don't. But I'm here to tell you, without a doubt, there are district attorneys that hate it. There are law enforcement groups, especially that absolutely think it's absurd. And it, it, it just, it really helps them keep these things, you know, you, you, you just don't know. Like Carl and Vicki, you just don't know what's in their file. You don't know how good it is or how bad it is. Right. Because it's a secret yeah. forever. And, and I heard at one point the district attorneys were, had put their toe in the water and they said, we're going to see about making them public after 25 years. They thought, let's pick a really good long time because we've got to start somewhere. And then a lot of people who would be super offended would be dead or retired, but that didn't even get any traction. Yeah. And 25 years after an unsolved crime, even a, I mean, you understand what I'm saying? Even a solved crime, it's closed forever. Oh, so even solved is closed. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah. Oh, I didn't know. And the only time you ever find out anything is if it goes to trial. And thus the Holly Bobo debacle where the TBI completely blew the case, was fighting about everything. Right. Made mistake after mistake. That only came out because they had to prove that in the trial as, as part of explaining what happened and what really happened. So that's like the, one of the few times where it only comes out if it goes to trial, their cases. All right. That's all fascinating. I, I, I didn't know that, especially about a solved case. And I know yeah, that solved case, nothing. Yeah, yeah, forever. And I have heard about plenty of people petitioning and trying to get those files unsealed, especially after so many years. And like you said, 40 years is crazy that yeah. family can be or people don't know what are in those files. So all it can be is if there's a change in the law. And that's why they floated the idea to, make, to change and it all started because a lot of early in the early history of the TBI, they were investigating lawmakers. They're the ones who investigate lawmakers for stealing money, for fraud, for unscrupulous. So the lawmakers were really quick to let them seal those forever because they didn't want any of their stuff coming out ever. You know what I mean? Okay. So yeah. That, right? Because they're like, well, they're the ones investigating us. We don't want this mm -hmm. stuff to ever come out. So, mm -hmm. I mean, it was really self-serving, nefarious of the legislature so quickly grant them, you know, permanent privacy on their files because, but they did it because they didn't want their own junk coming out when one of them got in trouble. Which happened again this year, so I mean, it happens. Yeah. Do you know how many states have that same kind of law or is Tennessee very unique with I that? I don't. Okay. I don't. I don't just because it's, you know, uh, it's a really good question. And if there were very few states doing it, that would be really a reason to change it. So that's a good idea. That's a good story to look into. Who else is doing this? Right. You know? Yeah. Maybe that's the next Dennis, uh, a Farrier file story. Yeah. You've given me a good one. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. Like, the, what is, you know, the Kentucky State Police, you know, they're their big investigation, the Georgia Bureau of Investigation, you know, wherever you go, everybody's got some kind of state investigation, yeah. at least some degree. Yeah, right. You know. Right. 
do you think do you think this case can be solved well any case can be solved you know i mean there's time works again you know time works for you for a while and then it works against you you know i think most of these cases are filed are, are solved within a week right you know, right yeah. i don't even know what the average time is but it's quick it's a week yeah. and then the ones that linger and then you have and then you know you have i mean you have witnesses die you have they get old and adult i know there's some witnesses in this case that would never really like completely come forward into the light of day and say you know and so that hurt i mean that's why i think 40 years you know such a and with the you know the evidence evidence problems on the scene I mean, of course it could be solved because gosh, anything can happen, you know, I mean, just, right. you know, mm -hmm. but it, you know, yeah, it's, it, it seems more unlikely every year, not more likely, more unlikely. And pretty soon it, you know, won't even, I mean. Yeah. What do you think about advances in DNA testing and technology of that sort actually being a benefit to the case at this point in time? It just depends on what the evidence is, which I don't know. I know that recently in Grundy County, they had a fingerprint on a door and it was, they couldn't read it. And uh, they, t they retested it 12 years later with new technology and it, it, uh, it matched. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and it was even better than solving a murder because it, they had the wrong guy in jail and they had to release him. who had been in jail for 14 years, Adam Brasile. Yeah. Okay. And they had to release him based on that finger. That fingerprint is what released him. And that was the retesting of an old piece of evidence. So your question is, yeah, there's all kinds of new technology, but what is the evidence and what is the quality of evidence? And I mean, I, I really, you know, uh, you know, the DA in this case, Ray Crouch is pretty aggressive and a very law and order guy. I mean, you would think that he would, we ha would really want things retested, you know? He's right. a younger guy, this isn't, he doesn't have friends from this thing, you know, all the things that slow cases down. I mean, he's not connected in any, it just seemed like he would use it if it was possible, but it's all so secret, who knows? Mm -hmm. It's funny, you actually said that, the fingerprinting. I, I, I spoke with someone, um, that works with DNA, and they said that the fingerprinting has actually come further along than DNA. I, I I don't know if that's correct or not, but now, like you said, they can pull partial print partial prints off of almost anything dating way back. So I don't know if that's true that actually fingerprinting has come further than DNA even, but but having both of those together can yeah. solve whole cases. I think. Yeah, there's a big like nationwide murder case that I'm working on. And I think that the guy in jail didn't do it. His name's uh, Major Kit Martin. He was an American Airlines pilot. And he's accused of triple murder. And they said, oh, hundreds of things trying to connect his DNA. None of them came back positive. And then, of course, then the defense wants it and says, well, let us test it. Because you're trying to make sure it's, you're looking for one person. But like the other side, maybe, well, let's see who, whose it is. If it's not me, who is it? And they, they, they damaged the, the, they mishandled the evidence and it's untestable. And that's another problem. You know, you keep handling this evidence, eventually sometimes a lot of the really good stuff becomes untestable. And so then the new right. technology doesn't even help you 
because you've mishandled. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I mean, they had people like take a, a, I mean, stuff has happened like there was the woman was killed in a sweater and they had a handbag from a different scene and they took the sweater and put it on the handbag for a mm -hmm. minute. Well, that's called, that's a contamination because now you've, there will be sweater fibers on that. Yeah. Uh, you know what I mean? Like the wallet that the guy they think had it, you've actually like framed somebody inadvertently because you've taken evidence from the dead person and put it on something that belonged to the suspect. Yeah. And now everything's out the window. So even if he did it now, you've done worse because you've destroyed the evidence. You can't use any of that. It's all gone, and that ha that just happened. Mm -hmm. That just happened like three years ago on a piece of evidence, you know. Yeah, People and we're trying to send stuff off. Yeah, and the last thing we would ever want is the wrong person to go to jail, right? Is, right. Oh yeah. 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 I don't know, follow the Curtis Flowers case out of Mississippi. He, he was just—I think it was just two right. days ago. Yeah, I followed that case for years, and and that guy spent 23 years in jail for a crime he didn't commit, and uh, they just dropped his case the other day. So that was super exciting for him but, and we don't want the wrong person to go to jail for this you know i guess you're innocent until you're found guilty but someone should pay for these crimes absolutely yeah i mean it's they're so far from the wrong person i mean we don't have anybody right even close so yeah yeah and i don't i think at this point i think that would be pretty unlikely because after 40 years you would have that's the other thing you have to have a really good case to convict mm -hmm. you know or yeah. arrest I think that's a really good point, Amelia, though. It's not like we're looking to have somebody pay for these crimes. We're looking for the right person and to know what really happened and bring justice for Carla and Mickey. And I think that that's a, definitely an important nuance. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. It's a fantastic thing to try to do at this point, you know. It's important. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Dennis, thank you for coming on today. It's so good to see you. Good to see good. you both. <laughs> yes, thank you for your time. This was wonderful. Yeah, it's great talking to you. I always enjoy it. So anytime. Sure, and hopefully we'll be back your way again and we can catch up. Yeah, that would be great. So we were fortunate to be able to have some time with Dennis Ferrier from Fox 17 News. Um, we, Amelia and I had actually done a segment with him when we went to visit Dover um, several months ago. What did you think of Dennis's interview? So I always appreciate talking to Dennis. Yeah. He's been also a wealth of information over this last year and, you know, a big personality mm -hmm. he is. I, he's always so much fun to chat with. And I think he um, actually, he was taught us something we didn't know. I didn't know that Tennessee files um, are always closed. Even with a case closed, you can't access those files. So I thought it was important to know that, that those files um, aren't being, you know, held purposely. Mm -hmm. Like they're just not available. Yeah. So it's when the law. It, it, right, it is what it is. So when we're always complaining and we're always like, why can't we get those files? It's it is what it is. Like you, we're not ever going to get those files. Yeah. So um, that was important to know that mm -hmm. the efforts we keep putting forward trying to get those files. I would like to see it change, like yeah. he said. And I know that other reporters I've talked to in the past. Uh, um, another reporter I speak with often, he really wants to get that changed as well. And, um, and maybe one day, like maybe one day there will be a time, like, he, like Dennis said, 25 years, he thinks is a good, you know, good starting point, mm -hmm. but in 40 years is a long time. But I mean, maybe there's reasons they hold those files. I mean, I don't know. 
but I felt Dennis was very, it was always fun to talk to him and I really appreciated him coming on. Yeah, me too. So hi everyone, we're back here with Michelle Steely Seals and Michelle is a family member. Um, she's cousin to Carla and Vicki. Um, Michelle, do you wanna tell us a little bit more about your relationship to the girls? So thank you again for joining us, by the way. Yes, hey, thank you for having me. And um, let me start off by saying just how much we appreciate all this. Oh, thanks, Michelle. This is, um, this has gotten more attention in the last year than it has in the last 39 years. And though it's pretty phenomenal. So um, I really appreciate that and everybody does. So um, to start off my, um, my relationship with the girls, I am a first cousin to Carla. My mother's brother married um, their mother and they already had, well, Miss Nail already had several children when they married and then she had um, with my uncle um, a son and a daughter which was Carla and Joel so they're actually my first cousins by, by blood and then the rest of them were you know by marriage. Okay how, how old were you when um, Carla and Vicki went missing? I was seven. On September the 17th, when they went missing, I was seven years old, and five days later, I turned eight. Okay. Do you remember that time well? I do. I do remember it. Um, as far as the girls, I don't remember that, but I just remember, um, I remember when that happened and just how the turmoil, you know, of everything was. You know, this was my mother's niece. Um, that went missing and I can remember her, um, you know, the, I remember a lot of the sadness that, that followed. Um, mm -hmm. during, so yes, that's what I remember the most. Now, did you live in Dover at the time? I lived in Stewart County. Um, actually the little town that I lived in was about 10 miles out of Dover towards Houston County, the little area called Carlisle. During that time, do you remember like you, you being scared or your family? Did they keep it from you? Were you being sheltered during that time or? Uh, they, you know, they talked about it. I always remember them talking about it um, as far as being sheltered. Yeah, because um, life as I knew it as being able to, um, we had two little stores in our community and I can remember as a kid being able to walk to those two stores. And, you know, at, you'd have to get on the highway to walk down there to them. And I could go to the store. And that all changed um, when all this happened. My sister Lori, she played basketball and she used to, would run on the highway, you know, for training and conditioning. And that all had to stop. My, my dad was especially, no, you can't be out running on the road, you know something like this can really happen now, you know, we can't afford to lose y'all too. So, yeah. Well, a lot changed after that. So yeah, my parents probably became more protective of us mm -hmm. um, since that, you know, this, you say this will never happen in your town, especially a little town like Dover. Well, it did. And it was almost 40 years ago. So yeah. Yeah. That changes a small town. I mean, that can. Big time. And I, I don't imagine it was so much for us. I would imagine for a lot of families, they probably thought, 
well, you know, who picks up two girls and takes them off and they're never seen again, you know, until three weeks later, ultimately. So, you know, they were dead. So I imagine, I imagine not just for our family, but I imagine a lot of the families um, in the community were probably, you know, parents were thinking the same thing. You know, we've got to keep a close eye on our kids now. Yeah, rethinking the activities they'll let them do on their own. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So what is, um, so it, I know you've been now involved in, you know, keeping the, the case alive and in the top of people's minds. What, what is it that um, you have found has been the most, I don't know, uh, compelling reason to keep this going? You know, like, um, is it, is it because of the girls and the fear that this may inst have instilled in the community or is it because their family? Is it because, you know, it's the town that you live in? I mean, there's a lot of, I guess, different factors potentially. Um, of course the first and foremost, they are, it's my family and, um, probably I want to do it for my mom. Um, this is my mother's niece, and um, so it, it kind of gets altered. And uh, and I really want to do it for her. So, but um, and and I want justice to happen for them. They deserve this. They were fourteen and sixteen year old girls. And um, their life was cut short, and that's not fair. So that's what, I, that's what really drives me. So. <laughs> yeah, no, I, um, I, I, we feel the same way. Yeah. <laughs> it's not fair. Right. They, I think sometimes we get them, and, you know, they could have really been something, but they never got the chance, so. So, you know, we can't give it back to them, but we can sure keep their voice heard. You're, you're an amazing voice for them too, Michelle. <laughs> We've been, you know, you and following you um, for some time now, and you've been an amazing, you know, family member and voice for these girls. And, you know, that, that's what we, you know, we try to also remember as well, that they were two young teenagers. They weren't doing anything wrong they didn't do anything to deserve that they didn't do anything to hurt anyone two young beautiful girls that like you said had an amazing life ahead of them yeah absolutely I mean they could have been anything they wanted to be but they never got the chance apparently for a selfish reason their lives were taken and you know and who knows what what kind of life this person um, that did this, you know, what kind of life are they living? Um, you know, are they living some elaborate life or, you know, um, I hope not, but I mean, you know, they could be, they probably went on with their life just like, you know, like it was nothing and um, got to go on with, go on with their daily thing, you know? So that, you know, that's always in the back of my mind. What kind of life are they living or, he or she, whoever did this, what kind of life are they living? Right. I hope it's in the back of their mind every day. I hope, I hope they think about this every day, just like we do. 
Do you feel that there is still a potential that this crime, these crimes will be solved? The killer will be arrested? I sure do. I really do. And I've, I've probably felt it more this past year. I really do. Mm -hmm. what, would, like, what would you like to see happen in this next year? We would have liked to have seen more happen before this, you know, the end of this month happen. Um, I would think a lot has happened this last mm -hmm. year, but what would you yeah. like to happen within this year? In the next year, um, that um, possibly, you know, that um, the Parabon may be getting going more and we can get some um, DNA and, um, and can, you know, just keep going forward. That's what, I, you know, I just hope it, it just always keeps going forward until mm -hmm. we get an answer. Um, I hope um, we never have to spin our wheels ever again because that's where we had been prior. We were always spinning our wheels, it felt like. We would get so far and then like the two step forward or one step forward and two steps back, it's the way it always felt. Right. But I think um, so far we've always stayed a step forward every time this past year. Mm -hmm. And that's the way I'd like for it to keep going. Yeah. Would you like to tell us a little bit about the upcoming vigil? Yeah, so we have um, the vigil, which we've been doing um, since year 35. Um, we've been having a, a vigil of some sort, um, whether it be just the family getting together. The first year we ever had it, we had it a community-wide. We had it right in town, and it went really good, and we've just always been able to have some sort of a get-together um, for the family, especially together. Um, but this year, um, we are um, going to have it on October the 4th. Um, we'll be at the Stewart County Visitor Center at, starting at 2 o'clock. Um, we'll be there till however long everybody wants to stay. So um, we want to encourage family, friends, everybody to come and um, talk with us, talk about Carl and Vicki. Um, they have something that they want to tell us. We, we hope we encourage it. Um, but we, but we are going to have something from them for er every year from now on. That's good. And I think you're right too. I, that's something that you have to keep doing and not just talk about Carla and Vicki when, you know, the time comes around every September. I think we just have to keep their names in the public all the time. Like just keep talking about, keep their names out there and, um, until, until answers are found, you know, until we put someone behind bars. Right, absolutely. And you never know when somebody's going to be ready or willing to share what they know. Right. So I yeah. Think that's an amazing thing that you're doing because yeah. somebody's going to just come up and say, I have something to tell. I know something that's very important. Mm -hmm. So I just, mm -hmm. you know, I think I'm, we're just going to get a big surprise one day and that's it. Yeah. Yeah, so. that's what we can hope for, right? Mm -hmm. We can always keep that, keep that yeah. hope. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, and two, talking about the visual, we would have loved to have had it um, October the 5th, which is the day the girls were found. 
but um, the fourth is on a Sunday, so that's why we chose that day. So we was hoped that maybe a lot more people could come on that day. So, but um, and y'all are going to air the seventeenth, correct? Yes. Good. Yeah. Right. Yeah. This is the seventeenth, right? Uh, we wish we could come down um, for the show, but I think probably because more so because of um, COVID and just our kids in school, I don't think we're going to be able to make it down for the vigil, but that would have been nice to, well. <laughs> yeah, but we know y'all are going to be there with us in spirit, so we know. Yeah, definitely will be. <laughs> yeah, no, you'll be there anyway, so. Well, Michelle, thanks for coming on. It was so good to see you again. Yes, y'all too. I wish we could see you in person, but this is pretty neat right here. Yeah. Well, Hopefully we'll be able to see you in person again sometime soon. I hope so too. I hope so too. So great to talk to y'all. All right, Michelle. Thank you. Have a great night and we will. We'll be in touch very soon. Thank you. See you later. All okay. right. Take care. All right. Bye. So Amelia, what did you think about Michelle's interview? Michelle's interview is so heartfelt and just sweet. I mean, you tell how much she cares about her family and how much you know, she's been one of the driving forces of helping find justice for the family. And, you know, I just really appreciate, you know, how much Michelle's been supportive of us mm -hmm. and the podcast and, you know, meeting her in Dover was also, it was really great to put a face with a name. And so um, I really appreciate Michelle and all her help. What did you think? Yeah, I was just, I'm just really um, inspired by her passion mm -hmm. and her dedication to continuing to focus on keeping the girl's spirit alive through the vigils that they're hosting right. every year. And really, like you said, the, the dedication that she's had to really solving this case because of the love of her family. Yeah, it was, it was, a, it was a great interview. Thank you for listening to Murder at Land Between the Lakes, special episode 40 years later. Tune in tomorrow night to listen to part two, where we'll be featuring Mayor Robin Brandon, Mayor of Stewart County, and childhood friend Ruby Wooten. If you have any information, please call 1-800-TBI-FIND. That's 1-800-824-346. Or you can call us at 609 429-0371. That's 609-429-0371.